This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by The Business Accelerator, a coaching program for business owners designed to help you scale your business faster. Find out more at businessaccelerator.com. Robert Samuelson is a longtime, multiple award-winning columnist for The Washington Post. He writes on economics, and he's forgotten more numbers and statistics than most of us will ever know. He's a valuable observer of economics precisely because of the way he always digs a little deeper. He goes beneath the numbers to understand what they mean. He wants to know not just how things work, but how people work. So today we turn to Robert Samuelson for advice on the subject of deadlines, why they're important and how to use them. Most of us hate deadlines because of the pressure they produce. Who hasn't complained about a deadline at some point or ignored it? or begged to get out of it, or stayed up late to meet it. Deadlines seem, well, unfair, arbitrary, a needless obligation in an already jam-packed schedule. But Samuelson knows better. Deadlines are essential, he says, because work can be endlessly elastic. Nothing would ever get done without deadlines. He goes on to say, if this column were not due today, I'd be writing it tomorrow, and the next day, and the next. I would write it forever because there would be forever to write it. He concludes by saying, Deadlines may inspire superficial thought, but without deadlines, there'd be no thought at all. We dread deadlines and even mock them. Douglas Adams, author of the wildly popular book, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, said this about deadlines. I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make as they go by. He wasn't kidding. At one point, Adams was so far behind on writing a novel that his agent had to lock the two of them in a room for several weeks. That was the only way he could focus on getting the work done. When Adams died at the age of 49... He hadn't published a novel in almost a decade. His final work was published as a fragment. Because he had no deadline, Adams just kept pushing words around. Until he ran out of time. Just as Robert Samuelson might have predicted. Deadlines. Yes, they produce pressure, but they also prompt us to take action. So maybe Samuelson was right. Everyone needs a deadline. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt-Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work, succeed at life, and lead with confidence. And in this episode, we're going to show you three foolproof strategies that enable you to deliver your best results on time, every time. As leaders, we all have to deliver the goods, whether that's a big project or a new product. Too often, though, these major initiatives get bogged down in a morass of minutiae. Did you... (laughs) Did you just say that? I mean, it's in the script, so I just read it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Over the years, we've honed our ability to deliver big results on a tight timeline. And today, we'll share three foolproof actions that virtually guarantee on-time delivery of a product or project. When we're through, you'll avoid being stuck in collaboration mode while another delivery date rolls by. And you'll gain a knack for delivering results that move your business forward. Okay, so I'm excited about the topic of delivering results, particularly deadlines, although I'm a little less excited about the deadline part of it, but I know we need it. So I want to come back to that idea of the morass of minutia. Mm-hmm. 
It affects us too. I mean, oh, every yeah. business has a million, maybe a gazillion details to manage. Yep. And major projects come on top of that. So I think we have to acknowledge up front that producing a major deliverable, whether it's a project, a new product, or some company-wide initiative, really is tough. So from your perspective, Meg, what makes it tough? Well, first of all, these things come on top of our regular jobs. Most of us have day-to-day responsibilities that take up all of our time, whether that's our uh, personnel efforts or finance or operations. And most executives are already putting in at least 55 hours or more from our research. Yeah, we talked about this last week. This is a very point of why it's difficult to create new products because it comes on top of our existing job. Same thing here about deadlines. Mm Mm-hmm. But the second thing I think we have to say is that collaboration takes longer than you think. Oh, my gosh. To quote you, things take longer than they do. (laughs) One of my favorite quotes. It's not original to me, but when I heard it, you know, years and years ago, I was like, man, that is so true. Just some little old lady I met out in the country one time. I think you should take credit for it. (laughs) Well, I mean, no need to cite that reference. So I'll cite her. (laughs) Okay. But the bottom line is you got to get input, you got to get buy in, you got to get multiple approvals, and gaining consensus takes time. Driving alignment takes time. Mm And one key player can get distracted and bog everything down. I mean, somebody else is on another project and they're under deadline. That can impact your deadline because you didn't factor that at the beginning. Well, also, we're generally really bad at estimating how long things take. You think? I mean, don't ask me how I know this. (laughs) We are like professional at underestimating how long things take. Greg McEwen says in his book, Essentialism, that you should take everything that you estimate a time for and multiply it times 1.5. Yeah. I think he's too conservative. I know, I need to. It's like double the time. <laughs> also, you know, the higher the stakes, the more we procrastinate. We know that a big project is really important to our company. And so we don't want to put our reputation on the line or the company's reputation. And oftentimes our perfectionism or just the weightiness of it really get in the way of making progress. Have you noticed that for some people, this is particularly hard? I, yes. I think this may be related to a personality type. Right. You know, people that just don't want to commit, they're hesitant. Yes. We used to have a certain web developer, if you remember, yes, that had a very, very difficult time committing to a deadline. Yes. And I can remember one particular project that we were trying to launch out of the gate. I mean, it came right up to the day that we had announced. And he said, I don't think I can do it. And I said, let me tell you something. We're going to launch this. I don't care what shape it's in, but we're going to launch this today no matter what. Well, he got it in gear and finally, I think, took me seriously on it. And we got it out the door. But hard deadlines motivate a lot of great action. Mm-hmm. But for some people, it's it's difficult to commit. Strategy number one, commit to a deadline. Now, this seems intuitively obvious, like, well, of course. But like it's I not. said, <laughs> some people have difficulty with this. I mean, we use their smarter goal framework, which has built into it that there's got to be a deadline. And we talk about the outcome. And it's easy to forget the time-bound part, which is the T in Smarter. Mm -hmm. But we move into action or development mode without a clear timeline, and that's a problem. And sometimes we're intentionally vague. You know, we say something like, yeah, we'll get it out in the spring or later this year, or that's coming out next year. And the problem without a hard deadline is that it just drifts. Mm -hmm. You take forever. Like we had a hard time when we launched Platform University Mm -hmm. because that's what we said. We're going to get it out sometime this fall. That was back in 2011. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it drifted into the spring. Right. So that's the problem, not setting a hard deadline. 
I also think that the fear of failure is at the root of this, you know, especially no if you're maybe you're inexperienced or you're a perfectionist or like we said earlier, the stakes are high. You just don't want to commit because you know that it's possible that you'll fall short. And that for some people is really um, an intolerable feeling. So how do you handle that in your own life? You know, sort of that balance between setting a hard deadline and really making yourself accountable to that on the one hand, but realizing that you don't really know what you're signing up for in the front end because you don't know what's involved in the project. And it's a little bit arbitrary. So how do you think about that? Well, I've done this a lot at this point professionally. And I got to say, I love deadlines. They're my friends. <laughs> I have learned. Um, that's probably a little bit unique to my personality. You know, in the the Colby Index that we talk about a lot, um, I lead with my quick start. You know, so those are people that like to take action first and not everybody's like that. Um, but I love deadlines. I have found that the resources show up once you commit to a deadline in almost every case. I mean, there are certainly cases where we adjust deadlines when seen things come up and there's nothing wrong with that. But more often than not, we hit our deadlines because we commit to them and people just innovate and have breakthroughs and all kinds of things happen that would never happen without the deadline. So I've just seen this happen so many times that I, I don't want to cheat us out of that experience. Okay. I want to, I want to ask you a question. I want you to give me a really honest answer. What percentage of your own personal deadlines, forget the company for a second, but you, when you have a deadline, what percentage of your personal deadlines do you actually hit? <laughs> I'm laughing because that, that's higher. So me on my own without the team is not as effective as me with the team. So when I have the team, I'm great at leading to deadlines. Myself, I would say I'm probably like 50 to 60% I hit my own Okay, deadlines. that's better than I am because I was going to really? say about 30%. Yeah. I'm almost always late. The thing that saves me is a publicly proclaimed deadline. Yes, totally. So, yeah, those I would say are almost 100%. Yeah, I'm almost 100% because yeah. it's showtime. I got to show up and deliver the goods. But here's another crazy thing I do with deadlines. I don't know if you do this, but I procrastinate up until the last minute. Yeah, me too. And I and I used to Always. feel really guilty about this, like preparing a speech, for example. Yeah. Like I, like I just had to speak this last Sunday because I do a weekly Sunday school class. And uh, I keep thinking to myself, if I could just get a week ahead, you know, if I could prepare this a week in advance, it would be happen. so much better. But here's what happens. And I, I'm telling the truth, and I hate to admit this. I'm a little bit embarrassed by this. But I don't actually start preparing. I might do some reading on Saturday night, but honestly, it's not till Sunday morning. I get up like at 4.30 in the morning and I start working on it. I used to feel terribly guilty, ashamed about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of my coaches said to me that that's exactly how he functions. And he said, that's just how you're wired. Right. So let it work for you. This is where you have to have self-awareness and leverage the parts of you um, that you know work in certain ways for your benefit. I think the trick is, though, you have to know that you do that and then make space for it. So that would be a real problem yes. if you had your calendar solidly booked until right before that happened. But if you know that about yourself, you can make sure that you block out some time that morning or you know whatever kind of is your unpredictable pattern in air quotes, which is actually very predictable because you keep doing it over and over. You can really make space for that. Well, it can be... It can be Really helpful. And fortunately for me in that example, there's no, not a lot competing for my time on Sunday morning at 4.30 in the morning. Right. <laughs> so that works out <laughs> So I'm able well. to pull it off. That's but, great. But I think, it's, it, I think it's important to recognize that, but at the same time, you've got to build that in. So talk a little bit about how we accommodate me in that 
with our team. Well, for example, we know that before a live event, we need to leave space on the content team for iteration. So very often you're going to have your best ideas in the the few days leading up to that. Now there is a hard deadline at some point we have to print materials and then, you know, it's kind of like you have to stop. Yeah. <laughs> you can't iterate anymore, but we would never want to like shut that off and just say, well, if you haven't thought of your best ideas a month out, then we're not going to incorporate them because uh, we would be missing out on your best thinking. So that's, that's kind of how we've approached it again. Um, your coach has given us some insight to that, that, you know, that he's used also successfully. So that's been helpful. But one thing I will say, so that's one side of it. And that's great for individual work that you're doing. If you're working with a team, it is important when you're committing to a deadline that you take into account the real constraints of the process. For example, there may be production constraints, yes. there may be content development constraints, there may be, you know, other things that actually take a certain amount of time to do. And so if you set uh, and commit to a wildly unrealistic deadline, your team is going to hate you after mm -hmm. a while. So it's important that you get input from your team before you commit to a deadline. And that's kind of part of alignment, which is something you talk a lot about. I would say another thing about deadlines too, is that sometimes it helps to set a shorter deadline than you think you need. Agreed. So this is all kind of intention there together. I mean, these things sound contradictory, but they're not. I know because like, like for example, I was trying to solicit endorsements for my new book, Free to Focus. And I've learned this over the years that if you give potential endorsers too much time, they procrastinate and never get to it. Mm -hmm. But if I create a short deadline, like this is due two weeks from now, amazingly, people get it on their calendar because they feel a sense of urgency and that urgency drives action. Totally. So that's the value of a deadline. It drives urgency. Yep. So sometimes shorter deadlines work better than longer deadlines. Hey, everybody. Mike Boyer here, one of the members of the content team here at Michael Hyatt & Company. I want to make sure that you know about everything that's available to you with this week's show. Be sure to check out the show notes at lead2.win. There you'll find a full transcript of the show and a link to no-fail meetings. This week's Michael Hyatt magazine features a great article on the science of gauging time by Aaron Wildermuth, plus some other insightful articles related to deadlines. There's a link in the show notes for that too. Please make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you may listen to this podcast. If you're not quite sure how to do that, there's a step-by-step -step guide at lead2.win slash subscribe and tell a friend about us too. Now, let's get back to the show. So the first strategy is to commit to a deadline. So let's move to strategy two. Yeah, strategy number two is make swift decisions. So decision-making is often where projects get bogged down because each approval or weigh-in can just take more and more time. And you know, before you know it, your project is delayed, right? Because you're waiting for somebody to get back to you. So man, this is like where bureaucracy can hamper your ability to succeed. It's so true, but it's not just the external things like bureaucracy. It's also the internal thing. So I, I, I want to loop mm -hmm. back to our personality. So let's look at it through the lens of the Colby. Uh -huh. Okay. So And by so the way, this is spelled K-O-L-B-E. It's called the Colby Index. So you can look this up and check it out for yourself. It's it's a great tool. And it's a, it's a major tool that we use mm -hmm. uh, before we hire people and we use it in, you know, kind of managing our, our leadership inside the, the company as well. Okay, so the Colby basically measures how we initiate work. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people call it striving, you know, how right. you strive at work, where your energy goes when you're working. But for a lot of people, they initiate work through fact finding. They got to do their research first. You and I are actually pretty high on fact finder. We, we, we score a seven mm -hmm. out of 10 on that. So that's a part of it. But we actually are higher on something called quick start. Right. Which means, you know, we initiate action by just, you know, getting into the game and doing something, right. anything. 
even if it's a wrong thing. Ready, right? fire, aim. <laughs> so, so I think your personality comes into play because people who are high on fact finder, that's their highest thing. Like mm-hmm. I think of Danielle on our team. Right. Or I think of your your mom. Right. You know, they they can tend to put off a decision, not make a decision. This is something internal to them, but they want to explore all their options. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Myers-Briggs, which is another lens, one of the components of that is something they call judging, Right. So for me, I'm an INFJ, and the J means that I'm high on judging versus something called perceiving, but it means I just like to make decisions fast and I like to get them in the rearview mirror. Right. As opposed to like your mom, I'll use her as an example. She wants to have all the decisions in front of her. Mm -hmm. You know, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want to make a decision because there's probably one more option she hasn't explored. Mm -hmm. So I think this is where as leaders, we come back to this idea. In fact, I think this was the very first episode we did of Lead to Win, the importance of being self-aware. Yes. So you got to be aware so that if you have a tendency to procrastinate because you need some more research, here's the here's the issue. The point of absolute certainty is never going to come. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be able to do enough research to take the risk out of the decision. Mm-hmm. And most decisions you can recover from. Right. You know, they're not so final. You know, maybe um, if, you're a, if you're a hang glider or a base jumper, you know, jumping off a cliff, that can feel pretty terminal. You want to get that decision right. But for most run-of-the-mill decisions that we make, they're recoverable. So we just need to make a decision and not hamper the process or slow it down. Another way we kind of get in our own way of making these swift decisions, which is so critical for meeting deadlines, is that we (laughs) over-collaborate. You know, where we're trying to use... That's cons- a great way to phrase it. Yeah, we're using consensus building or something like that to keep us from having to make a decision. And it just becomes slower and slower and slower. And what we're not saying is you shouldn't incorporate the input or feedback from your team because that's a critical mm-hmm. uh, component of making good decisions. But you need to do it in such a way that it's kind of in a defined period and you're able to move on to a decision. So it's good to have, you know, a, a smaller group of decision makers instead of decision by committee on that almost never goes well. Well, and I want to come back to something you kind of said, but you you went over it pretty quickly. And that is, this can be a subtle way of transferring accountability. Yes. So I'm no longer accountable for the result. I transfer that to the committee and they bear the responsibility. So you can't do that as a leader. Right. Absolutely not. Okay. So let's talk about how you can speed up your decision-making. So some of this is in our book, No Fail Meetings. But for every meeting ask, is this meeting necessary? So there are often way too many meetings when you're pursuing a deadline. Yes. Who has to be included and who doesn't? Whose approval is needed versus desirable? Do I? And by the way, it's good to differentiate between approval and alignment. So you're, you know, getting approval is like permission, but getting alignment is getting everybody on the same page. And I think sometimes we confuse those things Mm -hmm. and where, you know, alignment would do, we seek approval from everybody and it can really slow down the process. It can definitely slow down. Yeah. I think another important aspect of this is set deadlines on the review process. Mm -hmm. So never ask for a review with an open timeline, Yes. like whenever you can get to this. Can you take a look at this? And one of the tricks that I've learned to use is what I used to call in in writing direct response copy, sort of the negative option. Right. And this is basically yeah, this is like great. you subscribe to a program and unless you intervene and stop the subscription, mm-hmm. it's gonna you're going to keep getting this for the rest of your life. Yep. <laughs> so basically what I like to say is, look, here's the deadline. If I don't hear from you by that deadline, here's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden, you said to them up front, this is the course of action you're going to take if they don't respond. Yeah. So that's a great way to promote action or... 
get permission implicitly to take action if they don't respond. Yeah. Another thing I like to think about when I'm considering decisions is what's the best and worst case scenario if I make this decision? So in other words, I'm kind of looking at what the trade-offs are. If I make no decision, if I procrastinate the decision, what's the best and worst case of that? And then what's the best and worst case if I go ahead and move forward with the decision I think I want to make? That usually helps to bring some clarity. Um, Another thing that I love is something that I learned um, from Martha Beck, and, and that is to kind of forecast your yourself or project yourself into the future and ask the question, if I go ahead and make this decision that I'm contemplating, do I feel relief that I've made it or do I feel regret? You know, so Mm. what's the feeling that I have when I stand in the future and I look back? Because if I feel relief, then the tension that I feel around making the decision in the present is probably just the uncomfortable feelings or the hassle or, you know, whatever is kind of in the way, but it's not really ultimate. You know, the decision is still good. If, however, I feel regret, then that's something to pay attention to because that's not what you're going for. Hi there, my name is Amy Porterfield and I'm the host of Online Marketing Made Easy. So the way you know that you have enough to launch that minimal viable product that you can run with typically happens when you've done some research with your audience. And what I mean by that is I always encourage my students to do phone calls and not just on your cell phone, but get on Zoom or Skype and talk to your ideal customer avatar because so much is said with the nonverbal as well. So you get on a call with them and you can see their face and they can see yours and you ask questions questions and you really start to listen to what have they tried before? What have they done? What hasn't worked for them? What have they paid for? What would they be willing to pay for? What do they need? You've got to ask the questions that help you understand where they are now and where they want to go. And this helps so much knowing if you're on the right track and you can launch or if you might need to go back to the drawing board and do a little bit of work. So Amy Porterfield just talked about minimum viable products, which is a great setup for strategy number three. Strategy number three is to ship in beta. Now, this idea comes from the world of software development. So alpha is the first version, and that's basically what you do to test in-house. So you build the software, you test it with your team, try to you know ferret out as many bugs as you can. Then beta is the next generation. So this the software has all the complete features. It's survived your internal, you know, beating it up. But this version is the one that's often used in demonstrations, and sometimes it's released to a limited group for real-world testing. It's complete, but it's probably going to have some bugs. Mm-hmm. And we do this with our products. So we don't develop software. At least we don't do it anymore. We had one software product way back when. But uh, we do this with our products, and that's how we think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you think about shipping something in beta – It doesn't have to be perfect. And this is where perfect gets so many people hung up. And I like what somebody once said, you know, done is better than perfect. Right. So getting it out the door is better than perfect. And the problem is that if we don't get it out the door, we're going to miss opportunities. And the most important opportunity we're going to miss is the opportunity to make it better. Because we can sit in our ivory towers and alpha test with our team forever. And never get it right because we need user feedback. We know we need people that aren't us, that don't have our set of assumptions, that don't have our worldview to actually test the product mm-hmm. and get a sense of it. You know what's interesting about this that I was just thinking is that we believed this and practiced this for a long time when we were only producing digital products. And that's really easy to say because if you have a typo or something doesn't work, you can just, you know, log into the website, make the change, 
upload a new video, whatever, it's low cost, there's no risk. But we've actually done this also with our physical products, we which have. is, you know, an area where most people would consider it to be far more expensive and riskier to launch um, or to ship at, at a beta state instead of like a perfect state. The, For example, the full focus planner is now in its third iteration, small changes at this point are being made. Um, it's probably not ultimately its last one, you know, we'll, as we mm-hmm. continue to learn and hear from our customers, we'll continue to tweak. That's true for Leaderbox. Um, that's, uh, you know, just something that we have begun practicing with physical products. So even live events, even live, uh, definitely with live events, but, it, but it's just important to say that you may have some limiting beliefs around this, that you can only apply this principle to things that are cheap and easy to iterate on. And in fact, I can't think of anything where this isn't true. Well, an example is that, you know, certainly in the world of physical products and back when I was in the publishing world, you really worked hard. You had, a, you know, like a diff- different layers of proofreaders reading stuff because once it's in print, it's hard to change. But get this, Thomas Nelson, when I was there as the CEO, was the world's largest Bible publisher. And if there's any book you want to get absolutely <laughs> positively right, you know, it's the Bible because right. a lot of people count on it to be right. And I'll never forget one particular product that we published, and I don't know how it ended up in the product, but I think it was in John chapter 10, and I think it was supposed to say something about, you know, Jesus taught, and somehow, this doesn't even make sense, it said Jesus slopped. (laughs) Jesus slopped. Uh, And I didn't see it. Face palm. Oh, and we were doing this with a partner organization. Wow. And I was actually unveiling this product at this partner organization, and I got a call from our managing editor. He said, I don't know how to tell you this. But in John chapter 10, <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? So I had to admit this. But guess what? It wasn't the end of the world. Yeah. And in fact, we published an errata sheet with that Bible. And we and, and the guy that was the chairman of that board at the time said, this is going to be a collector's item. <laughs> so it's all about reframing it. And I think, I think the important thing here is to, is to shift our focus, is that if we want products that are truly excellent, that truly meet the needs of the marketplace, and particularly if we want to hit deadlines... We got to be willing to ship in beta. Yeah, so true. Okay, so when you were talking about that, it reminded me of some research that our team shared with me that was done by the Marriott, which shows that responsiveness is more important than perfection. They identified three groups of guests. So group A, nothing bad happened during their stay. Group B, something bad happened, but Marriott fixed the problem. And group C, something bad happened, but Marriott did not fix the problem. So the percentage of these three groups that said they would return to stay at the Marriott were as follows. Group A, okay, so nothing bad happened in their stay, 89%. Group B, which was something bad happened, but Marriott fixed it, 94%. So more people would come back if something bad happened and Marriott fixed it than if nothing went wrong. And then Group C, something bad happened, but Marriott did not fix the problem, 69% of those people would Okay, I think I know why that is. I have a theory. Okay, so the way you create wow is you exceed people's expectations. Mm -hmm. And if you lower their expectations with something that doesn't go right, now all of a sudden you have an opportunity to exceed their expectations by fixing it. Mm -hmm. So that creates wow. Right. So what that really means, let me see if I get this straight. What that really means is we need to engineer something that's a mistake or something that's a problem (laughs) into the product so we can fix it. I think you're missing the point. But you, think you say about, that's going to happen anyway? Yeah. But think about all the times that you've had a negative experience as a customer and the the person that could have fixed it failed to do that. But man, you could think of a thousand ways that they could just blow your mind with their amazing solution. And if they had, 
you'd be a customer for life. So true. So this this feels true to me. Okay, I want to talk just to, again about personality types and where they get stuck. And we've talked about Colby, we've talked about Myers Briggs, but another test that we use and love is the Enneagram test. Can you tell that by the way that we're a little geeky about this? I know we're a little bit geeky all the about tests. This. <laughs> so the Enneagram basically profiles people according to nine different personality types, but. You know, for people that aren't into the Enneagram, they can just gloss over this fast forward. But for those that are, and it's a super popular thing now. It's super popular. Right, super popular. It's blowing up all over the world. But what types of personalities might really struggle with this idea of beta, shipping something that's not quite... Yeah. Well, the type ones who are the perfectionists. Right. You know, they don't want to be... That's kind of obvious. Yeah, they don't want to be wrong. That's really difficult. Uh, and type threes who are the performers, uh, those people really care about what other people think. And they get a lot of their self-esteem and their value uh, kind of from the thoughts of others or the opinions of others. And so to put something out into the world that might be less than perfect and risk ridicule can be a really difficult thing. So I am a type three. Mm -hmm. And my worst emotion that I could ever experience is embarrassment. Yeah. You know, I would I would rather be flogged than be embarrassed. Gosh. Yeah. You know, and so being embarrassed is really something that 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 drives me. And this is why I work much better with the team mm -hmm. because left to my own devices, I'm going to make sure that the thing is as perfect as I can make it because I don't want to be embarrassed. Yeah. And so I think if you know this about yourself, again, it goes back to self-awareness, mm -hmm. then you can use a team and rely less on yourself to meet your deadlines. Absolutely. So to bring this back to shipping in beta, I think the point here with this Marriott story is that we don't have to be afraid of imperfection, that there are opportunities and imperfection to pursue greater excellence um, for our customers and our clients. There's and value in it for us and for our customers. Absolutely. Right. And so I think we can move forward without fear. Today, we've learned that you really can deliver on a big project or product by following three simple strategies. Commit to a deadline, make swift decisions, and ship in beta. As we wrap up for today, I just want to remind you that as a leader, you're responsible for results. Don't be afraid to put yourself on the hook. You really can deliver. Okay, Dad, any final thoughts for today? Yeah, I think we should embrace deadlines and not think of them as the enemy. They really are our friends. They create a sense of urgency for us. Uh, they can make sure that we finish what we start and that we our organizations move forward and we continue to grow. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can get the show notes, including a full transcript online at lead2.win. Thanks again for joining us on Lead to Win and please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen. We invite you to join us next week when we'll talk about a surprising competitive advantage for any leader, gratitude. Until then, lead to win. Dad, any final thoughts for today? Nope. I think we pretty much covered it. <laughs> okay, let's do it again, and I'll actually have a final okay. thought. <laughs> Dad, any final thoughts for today? Nope. I'm pretty much at a loss for words. <laughs> okay. These will be outtakes. Okay, give me give it to me again. All right. Do you have a final? I do. I really do. This is the loopy part of the day.